Today's scripture comes to us from the book of Genesis 18 through 25 and Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature that was its name, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to NCF. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's merely my joy and privilege to lead us in our worship as I deliver God's word to us. Uh, especially want to welcome those of you who might be visiting us for the first time. If you're here at the invitation of a friend, coworker, guest, sibling, whoever, or if you just happen to Google us, welcome, 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 especially if you're considering the claims of Jesus Christ. We know that coming to a church service might be highly uncomfortable because it is highly unusual, but we hope and pray that our time together will not only be instructive, but hopefully edifying to the point where you would even consider the truth that Jesus is who he claims to be, namely your creator, whom you are called to live in fellowship with. And so without further ado, would you mind bowing your heads just one more time as we go to God, asking for him to bless the message today. Father, we pray that you would speak to us in spite of all that we've gone through, in spite of the circumstances that we are currently still in. Father, we pray that even now as our eyes are closed physically, that the eyes of our heart that could easily fixate on what is fearful and distracting and anxiety-driven would be banished away by the power and presence of your spirit. God, we pray that you would speak to us no matter where we are at and that you would minister through the words that will be spoken. Father, we pray that you will encourage us, equip, and edify us as you promised you said you would when your saints gather together under the banner of the gospel. So, Father, we pray that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name and all God's people together said, amen. Amen. So if this is indeed your first time with us, we're currently in the middle of a summer series in our messages entitled Shoebox. Now you hear that and you're probably thinking to yourself, well, what an interesting name or title to give to a message series. And you're probably thinking, why in the world did this pastor give this series that title? Well, at the risk of coming across as being slightly or maybe plainly narcissistic, this title is actually a personal homage to me. You see, in a previous life for many years, I was a youth pastor. And one of the things that I did every summer with my youth group was that I would literally pass around an old shoebox 
And I would encourage them to write down and therefore submit any questions that they had about the Christian faith or pertaining to Christian life issues. And so I thought to myself recently, why not do that again with NCF? And so a few months back, for those of you who are members of this church, you remember, I asked you to submit electronically any topic pertaining to the Christian faith, whether it be doctrine or life issues that you found difficult to understand or difficult to accept. And so today we're going to talk about a topic that multiple people, to my surprise, have submitted as topic of discussion in today's sermon. A topic that I really thought would not be necessary, but yet because of the repeated requests, it now dawned on me that it is a topic that we need to address, and that is a topic of marriage. Specifically, how do you live out or how do you experience a successful marriage? Now, before I go on, let me first address those of you non-married folks in here, because I know right now you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, great, Pastor John's going to preach a message on marriage, a topic that is not personally relevant to me, and in fact, a topic that is quite painful to even think about because of my current status. Oh, well, I might as well tune him out right now and think about what I'm going to have for lunch. No, 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 please don't do that, because that couldn't be further from the truth. Because of the fact of the matter is, this message is relevant and applicable to you as well. Yes. You see, even if you are not currently married, chances are from a statistical standpoint, you will be married. And just like you have prepared your entire life for things that you're not yet doing, like you were in college, you were preparing to be a lawyer, you're not a lawyer. Why are you studying to be a lawyer? Because you know you're going to be one day, right? Why are you studying to be a doctor? Why are you studying pre-med at university? Well, you're not even a doctor yet because you know one day you might be, right? Chances are many of you in here who are not yet married will be a husband or a wife. And just like you have prepared for other categories of life throughout your living, doesn't it make sense to do that as well when it comes to one of the most important decisions you'll ever make? Of course. But what about those of you who feel called to live a celibate life? You know, for a congregation this young, for you to come to that conclusion, I might think I need some counseling with you. Come see me afterwards. But let's just say for argument's sake, an angel came down into your room and said, you will be forever single. And you're okay with that. Well, guess what? This message is relevant to you as well. You know why? Because you don't live your Christianity in isolation, meaning you have loved ones who are either are married or will be married, whether they be a sibling, a friend, a coworker, and maybe they'll come to you one day discouraged, depressed about their married life, and they'll be like, hey, can you give me some encouragement? Can you give me some advice? Can you give me a listening ear? Can you give me some wisdom? about what I should think about when it comes to my knucklehead of a husband or my crazy wife? Can you help me out? Sure, that's going to happen. And so this message is relevant to you as well. So with that out of the way, now that we know today's topic is relevant to everyone, we come to the question at hand, what does it take to have a successful marriage? You know, that is a question that is of interest of everyone these days, both in the church and outside the church. I mean, you just go on Amazon's webpage and type in their search engine, how to have a successful marriage. You'll have immediately up close to like 400 books. I actually counted how many books I, I averaged it out at least 400 books, right? Not to mention DVDs, videos, lectures, MP3s that are on there that just address this very topic. Clearly, there's a lot of information to sort through. And because that is the case, many of us are probably wondering, well, does the Bible really have anything to add to the plethora of information that we have to go through in order to answer this very important question? 
Well, I contend, yes, it does. In fact, I would even go further than that and say that what the Bible has to say as the answer to that question is far more important excuse me, than anything that you can find outside of the church. Because according to the Bible, the best way in which you can prepare or even currently live out a successful marriage is encapsulated in a phrase that just makes up two words. And that phrase is one flesh one flesh. If you want to have a successful marriage, according to the Bible, you need to have a one flesh marriage. And you're thinking to yourself, what? What is a one flesh marriage, Pastor John? Well, that's what today's message is going to be about. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today to help us understand what it means when the Bible says a one flesh marriage. Number one, a one flesh marriage is a marriage that is becoming. A one flesh marriage is a marriage that is becoming. Number two, a one flesh marriage is a marriage that is united. And finally, a one flesh marriage is a marriage that is mysterious. Ooh, right? A one flesh marriage is number one, a marriage that's becoming. Then it's a marriage that's united. And then it's a marriage that is mysterious. Okay, let's jump right in. First, a one flesh marriage is a marriage that is becoming. Skip down to our passage in Genesis and zero in on what it says in verse 24. As I read along, it says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If you are a note taker, you might want to underline or circle that word become because that's a very, very important word. Why? Well, first off, It's a word that seems a little out of place. And what I mean by that is when you first read verse 24, you would expect it to say something more like a man shall leave his father and mother and then he shall be one flesh with his wife, not become one flesh with his wife. Because think about it. The man in verse 24 starts off finishing something, right? What does he first finish doing? He leaves mother and father, which I'm going to come back to later on the message, Right? He completes that, and then he moves on to the next thing, which is what? Cling to his wife, which the way that it's written seems to convey a completed action, but then it goes on to explain that what it means to cling to his wife is for the man to become one flesh with that same wife. How does that make sense? Because to become something implies something that is not finished, something that is incomplete. In fact, that's the standard definition of the word become. It means literally to begin to become something. But how can you begin something that you completed, namely cling to your spouse? It makes no sense. Unless, of course, if you understand how the Bible understands love within marriage. Let me explain. If you ever watch these classic fairy tale Disney love stories that I'm watching pretty much constantly as a father of multiple girls, I'm talking about movies like <clears throat> Cinderella, movies like The Little Mermaid, <clears throat> The Frog and the Prince. You guys have seen all these movies, right? Men, right? We've seen all these movies, right? You know how these movies always end, right? <clears throat> how do they usually end? They end with a wedding, right? specifically a wedding ceremony. And before the movie fades to black and the credits roll, there's always that last scene where you come across a statement, a statement that's either spoken by one of the characters or actually written out. And what is that statement? And they lived happily ever after, right? Now, what that statement implies is that all the adventure All the pain and suffering, all the misery and all the hardships that you have to go through in order to experience the greatest of all loves happens before the wedding, which further implies all the drama, all the 
craziness, all the pain and suffering that comes in order to experience this love doesn't happen after you're married, right? Because all that's left is what? Blissful happiness, right? Getting married according to this narrative, right? Completes the quest of encountering this happily ever after love. But the Bible says wrong. That is absolutely wrong because the Bible would actually say something different. The Bible actually says the moment you are married is the moment when the quest to experience the happily ever after love begins rather than finishes. Let me say that again. The moment you are married, right, is the moment when the quest to experience the happily ever after love begins rather than finishes. That's what's being communicated with that one word to become, okay? And this is something we Christians really need to get because if we're brutally honest, most of us in here have been more influenced by what Disney or K-drama says about love and marriage rather than what the Bible says. For example, this nauseating thing known as the one. I cannot tell you, as my years as a pastor, I've been encountered by so many single people, i.e. so many of you, who've come to me asking, PJ, how do I know this person that I'm interested could be the one? How do I know that this person that I'm working alongside or do praise team with is possibly the one? Did I give away anybody? No. Okay. Right. How do I know? You know, I, I get so nauseated and so annoyed every time I hear that question. And yet I know that is my plight in life. You know why? Because this notion of the one is so embedded in Christian culture today that so many sincere Christians genuinely think that this notion of the one, the soulmate, is actually a biblical idea. A few years ago, I came across a hilarious popular Christian blogger, a woman, where she recounts her struggles and her realization about this concept of the one. Listen to it. It's a little bit long, but I'll do my best to make it uh, enjoyable as I read it to you. She says this. Do you remember those awesome evangelical 90s, early 2000s where Jesus was kind of like our boyfriend and we all kissed dating goodbye because we just knew that God was going to bring us the one and that life would just be awesome? And the one would most likely be a worship minister or at the very least a youth pastor and we would have to be in college when we would meet at some sort of rally to save children from disease or something? We would know that he was the one because of his plethora of WWJD bracelets and because, duh, he also kissed dating goodbye and was waiting for me strumming Chris Tomlin's songs on his guitar as he stared into whatever campfire was nearby. We would get married and it would be awesome forever. If you were like me in devout preparation for this moment, you wrote letters to your future spouse, preferably in a leather-bound journal dotted with your overwhelmed tears. Yes, I actually did that. But then my theologian, biblical scholar father shattered my dreams by informing me that God doesn't have a husband for me, doesn't have a plan for who I marry. Not true, I scolded him, attacking him with the full force of Jeremiah 29, 11, that God knows the plans he has for me, plans to prosper me, not to harm me, plans to give me a hope and a future. And obviously that means a hot Christian husband because God delights in giving me the desires of my heart. He slammed through my horrible yet popular biblical abuse by reminding me that the first verse applied to the people of Israel in regards to a specific time and just didn't even dignify my horrible abuse of the second verse with a rebuttal. Nope, he said. A husband is not only not a biblical promise, it is also not a specific element of God's plan for my life. God's plan is for us to be made more holy, more like Christ, not marry a certain person. I practiced really hard for that <laughs> valley accent, okay? Thank you. Clap louder so it can be recorded. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> what is this woman saying? She's saying this notion of the one 
is absolutely contrary and it is not what the Bible teaches. That you have this one person out there who is tailor-made for you and only you, your soulmate, where you live happily ever after once you are married and then suddenly nothing else matters. That is contrary to what scripture teaches. And if you are here today and you consider yourself a genuine follower of Jesus and you hold on to this view, not only are you terribly wrong, but you are potentially setting yourself up for severe, severe heartache and failure. Why would I say that? Consider these insightful words from C.S. Lewis. This is from his chapter on marriage from Mere Christianity. He writes this. People get from books, and I might add movies, the idea that if you have married the right person, you may expect to go on being in love forever. As a result, when they find that they are not, they think this proves they have made a mistake and are entitled to a change, not realizing that when they have changed, the glamour will presently go out of the new love just as it went out with the old one. In other words, if you buy into this Disney K-drama notion of love in marriage, right, you will feel justified and dare I even say entitled to just give up on the marriage once you are unhappy, right? And what is so tragic is that by doing that, you set yourself up of forfeiting the very thing that you are chasing after in search of this happily ever after love. Because here's the truth of the matter, folks. There is no such thing as the perfect spouse, the soulmate, or the one. But the Bible does say you can make the person you are married to become the one. Let me say that again. There is no such thing as the perfect spouse, the soulmate, or the one, but you can make the person you marry become the one. Because that is what a successful marriage does, according to the Bible. It takes two people who are initially not the one for each other, but by virtue of being committed and faithful to each other, that will create the reality that they become the one for one another because that's what a one flesh marriage is. It's a one flesh marriage that is becoming. It is a one flesh marriage where two people come together and they slowly transform into becoming the soulmate of one another. It doesn't begin initially, but it happens through faithful, committed love towards one another. Okay, one flesh marriage is a marriage where you get to be with your soulmate, but it is a soulmate that is becoming not someone who is already being. That is the first thing. Now, that begs the question, however, how exactly does that work? How does a one flesh marriage start where two people who are completely incompatible, who are clearly not the ones for one another, not each other's soulmates, and yet it ends up becoming to where they eventually become each other's ones? Well, to answer, let me go to my next point. A one flesh marriage is a marriage that is united. Read again verse 24, but this time let's include verse 25 of Genesis 2. And it reads, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here in these verses, we are told that in order for a marriage to be successful, in order for a marriage to have this wonderful one flesh experience as God intended it, it requires, it demands actually, two things. Two things. One that is required before you're actually married to that person, and the other one that is required after you are married to this person. But here's the thing. These two things are actually two different expressions of one same idea. And that is this idea of unity. 
Let me explain by what I mean by going to my first discussion of the first thing. At the beginning of verse 24, it tells us that the first thing that must happen before a person marries another person in order for them to have a successful marriage with that person is that they must do what? A man must leave his father and his mother. Now, I find these words very interesting. I find verse 24 very, very interesting. You know why? Because at the time that God gave this command, there are no mothers. There are no fathers, right? At least not yet. Think of the context. This is Genesis 2. The father, or excuse me, the husband and the wife that's being referred to here are Adam and Eve, right? The very first ever human beings in whom neither of whom had a father or mother. Isn't that interesting? Why in the world would God convey this idea that a man or a woman, for that matter, needs to leave their parents to be united to their spouse? Why? Well, let me answer by first asking this question. Do you actually know what it means when a man leaves his father and mother and becomes one flesh with their wife? For those of you who grew up going to Sunday school or attending many Christian weddings, you've heard that phrase. A man should leave his father and mother and become one flesh. with." But what does that actually even mean? Do you know? Consider this quote from Old Testament scholar Trumper Longman. He gives a very clear understanding of what it means. He writes this quote, A husband and a wife are to leave their father and mother and by implication all other loyalties in order to create space for new trust and to grow without entanglements to old loyalties. It is the first command for marriage, and when it is violated or ignored, a marriage is doomed to be less than it was meant to be and will wither and fail to produce good fruit. We are commanded to honor our parents, but honoring is never to be assumed to be more important than leaving. In fact, the command to honor is given well after the initial call for man and woman to depart the authority of their parents. We can honor our mother and father only if we have first created the proper boundary to serve and protect our spouse. A new relationship needs time and safety to grow just as a young, insecure shoot. Only by building a boundary against the past can a couple be relatively safe from harm. Leaving one's mother and father means that obedience to them is no longer an obligation. Loyalty to one's parents meant that their perspective and desires were more valued than those of one's peers or one's own. Marriage, listen to what he says, ends that loyalty. Hmm. What's he saying? He's saying leaving your father and mother means you're no longer under the authority of your parents to where you're obligated to obey them, to do whatever they demand of you, or to be pleasing to their will, okay? As far as God is concerned, that is done. You are finished with that once you know who you're going to marry. Instead, the loyalty that you had towards your parents and the devotion to please them that you had before you were married shifts over to your spouse. Why? Because that is what you need in order to create and establish and cultivate a marriage that is united. That is what marriage requires. That is the kind of singular prioritization and devotion that a new relationship needs to have if it is to become a one flesh marriage. Because what is a one flesh marriage after all? It is a marriage that is united. Do you know what a marriage is that's not united? It's a diverted marriage. A diverted marriage. You know what a diverted marriage is? It's a marriage that is divorced. That's where we get the word divorce. Divorce, excuse me, right? Etymologically, the root word for that comes from the word diverted, not unified. You see? A one flesh marriage requires before saying I do the commitment between you and your potential, your soon to be spouse of leaving mother and father. 
This is not something that God advises. This is not what God recommends. This is not what God suggests. This is what God commands. He commands this, okay? Which explains, after all, why in verse 24, he gives this command before there are even mothers or fathers at all. Because in a sense, what he's saying is, this is what I'm telling you to do. You don't do this because mom and dad gave you permission or consented to or volunteered to to let this happen. I am commanding you to do this. Okay, so you don't even need to go to mom and dad. You have to listen to me as your God. I command you leave mother and father and be one flesh with your spouse. Now, before I move on, let's make sure that you don't take what I just said and take it to an extreme incorrect conclusion. Okay, because look again at what it does not say in verse 24. It does not say that a man shall no longer have a mother and father and be one flesh or or become one flesh with his wife. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother. That word leave little nerd alert here is written in the original Hebrew in what is known as the Cal imperfect form a verb form, right? Which conveys this idea of ongoing action, which means leaving your mom and dad is not something you do once. It's something that you have to do over and over again, even after you're married. And some of you are like, yes, I'm still doing it now, right? It's something that you constantly need to do. And what that tells us is that if you're still leaving, right, it means you haven't severed your relationship with mom and dad, right? And that's something very important to understand because don't misabuse, all right, this idea of leaving and cleaving and think that that means that your spouse has to sever ties with their family of origin, because that is certainly not what it says. Listen again to what Tremper Longman, Old Testament scholar, says. He writes this, quote, boundaries mark off space, not to cut off contact with others, but to protect young trust that is beginning to take root. Note this well, jealous, possessive boundary building that cuts a person off from their family, friends, customs, and care is not biblical. It is abusive and violating. No spouse should ever be severed from their family and friends under the guise of leaving all past loyalties. No spouse should ever pressure a new wife or husband with the words, it's either them or me. The point of boundary building is to honor the necessity to grow a new trust marriage without undue intrusions or complications. Boundaries are to be built not only with our family, siblings, relatives, and friends, but also with regard to our past. We are to create a new boundary in relation to old boyfriends or girlfriends, sports, hunting, and fishing buddies, neighbors, and work colleagues. When we get married, it is like becoming a Christian. All things become new and all things will change. What's he saying? He's saying to leave one's parents is not severing ties with them. Rather, it's simply prioritizing the unity that you have with your spouse over the unity that you've had with your parents. And not just your parents, by the way. I hope you were paying attention to those last few sentences in that quote. But even your buddies, even your hobbies, fishing, right? Or even, (laughs) or, um, uh, Or even, you know, other me time things that you, quote unquote, had liberty when you were single. No, all of that takes a back seat when it comes to your relationship with your spouse. Okay? That's what it is saying. So that's the first thing that must happen in order for you to have a one flesh marriage. It has to happen before the wedding. That is, you must leave mother and father in order to have a successful marriage. But then let's move on to the other thing that we must do, something that we must do specifically after and only after the marriage, which we read in verse 25, follow along. And the man and his wife were both naked 
and they were not ashamed. Now, if, oh boy. Now, if right now, after reading that verse, sex is going through your head because you read that word naked, right? Let me alleviate any sense of guilt to thinking that you're some juvenile pervert or anything like that because here's the thing. That's exactly what you should be thinking, right? Because that word naked is referring to sexual intimacy. It is a reference to sex. And I know that may be shocking to many of us for those of us who grew up going to church because we've been tacitly taught that sex in and of itself is inherently like uh, disgusting, shameful, sinister, evil, sinful, nothing to be associated in any good way with the holy God or with godly people. But hear me when I say this, folks, that is absolutely wrong. Sex in and of itself is not disgusting. It's not shameful. It's something God created. And you know why he created it? He created because he intended sex to be the unifying force between a husband and a wife. Let me say that again. Sex was created by God to be the unifying force between a husband and a wife. In other words, nothing can make a person feel that another person is the one than when they're having sex with them. You see, there's something about the sexual act of itself that causes a sense of changing of thought patterns and emotional connections that you have with another person to where through that act, you are going to get the sensation, this person is the one for me. I am the one for them. We are soulmates. We are destined to be together. Sex was created by God to where that would create that kind of mental, psychological, and spiritual sensation in you when you're having sex with every, anyone, anyone that you have sex with, Right? This is why the Bible is so adamant of not calling you to live a sexual immoral lifestyle. This is why the Bible is, quote unquote, strict when it comes to not living a promiscuous, sexually immoral life, whether that's having sexual activity or even sexual thoughts with someone who you have not promised to be covenantly faithful to in the context of marriage. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know? that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. There it is. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What's he saying? He's saying you do incredible damage to yourself when you have sex with someone who never intends to be the one for you ever. Let's say, for example, a prostitute, right? How so? Because if you keep having sex with people who never intend to be the one for you and you for them, you know what you're doing? You're destroying sex's ability to create the sensation that the person you're having sex with is the one. The more you have illicit, promiscuous, casual sex, the more you destroy the apparatus that sex is embedded with that makes you feel that the person you're having sex with is the one. You know what's so tragic about that? Is that when the time comes after living that kind of life where you do get married, the sexual encounter that you have with your spouse will not function the way God intended it. Instead, you will rob your spouse, you will rob yourself of never feeling like they are the one for you and you are the one for them because you have totally eroded and destroyed the sexual apparatus that God had created to create the sensation that every time you have sex with someone, that person is the one for you. Do you see? Now, some of you hear that and you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, pastor, don't be ridiculous. 
People don't have sex so they can have this sensation of being with the one. People don't have sex to have this, you know, this encounter of, of happily ever after love moment. People have sex because they just want to have sex, specifically casual sex. People today, they're not looking for Mr. Right. They're looking for Mr. Right now, right? For many people, sex is simply a biological itch that they want scratched, and that's all it is for them. To which I would respond, are you sure? Are you really sure that's really the case? You know, it goes without saying that people and really societies who out of a desire to justify certain behaviors or certain lifestyle will genuinely suppress and deny what they know is obviously true, right? And every now and then there is one brave soul who's willing to stand up and stand up against that kind of mass hysteria by finally acknowledging the truth that previously they accepted along with the rest of society. And one such individual is a woman by the name of Dawn Eden, the former editor for the New York Daily News. <clears throat> Take a listen to what she says about all of this issue in her book, The Thrill of the Chaste. The Thrill of the Chaste. Listen to what she says. Quote, <clears throat> excuse me. When I was having casual sex, there was one moment I dreaded more than any other. I dreaded it not out of fear that the sex would be bad, but out of fear that it would be good. If the sex was good, then even if I knew in my heart, uh, if the sex was good, then, then even if I knew in my heart the relationship wouldn't work, I would still feel as though the act had bonded me with my sex partner in a deeper way than we had been bonded before. It's in the nature of sex to awaken deep emotions within us, emotions that are distinctly unwelcome when one is trying to keep it light. At such times, the worst moment was when it was all over. Suddenly, I was jarred back to earth. Then I'd lie back and feel bereft my partner was still there and if i was really lucky he lied down next to me yet i couldn't help feeling like the spell had been broken we would nuzzle or giggle or we could fall asleep in each other's arms but i knew it was play acting and so did my partner we weren't really intimate it had just been a game and the circus had left town In spite of what our <clears throat> society tries to convince us of, the fact is sex by its very nature will create a bond with another person to where the more you do it with them and the more they back it up with a lifelong commitment of staying only faithful to you till the day they die, that will create this sense of them becoming more and more like the one, more and more like the soulmate. That is the second thing that you must do in order to have a successful marriage according to God. It must be filled with consistent and frequent sexual activity. Right? Husbands are like, woohoo, right? It's true. The Bible says in order to have a thriving marriage the way God intended, couples must be engaging in frequent and consistent sexual activity. Now, I know some of you sisters in here who are married, you're thinking, that just sounds so offensive, PJ, right? Like you are reducing my beautiful relationship with my husband to just a sexual relationship. You know, my relationship with my husband is so much more multidimensional than just this physical thing known as sex. How dare you, PJ, right? Right? Because you know that your husband's going to be like, hey, you heard PJ's message today, honey? Right? <laughs> That's what you're thinking. Right? And you're so offended because it just seems like it's so superficial, so shallow to say that, that, that one of the core ways that you strengthen a happy marriage is just to have sex, sexual activity with frequency. Calm down. Let me try to explain myself by going to my final point. A one-flesh marriage is a marriage that is mysterious. Now, of course, I know 
Marriage is so much more than a sexual relationship. Marriage is clearly more than a sexual relationship. But at the same time, it is also very clear that sexual activity in marriage is really the clearest and most reliable indicator as to the health of a marriage. Okay? Now, notice what I did not say. I didn't say sexual activity is a perfect indicator to the health of a marriage, but it is a reliable indicator to the health of the marriage. Let me explain what I mean. Human beings are very complicated people, right? It's very hard to know what's going inside of a person, psychologically, emotionally, what have you, right? I mean, most people have a hard time knowing what's going on inside of them, let alone another person. And you couple that with the reality that most people live on automatic pilot, not really knowing what's going on inside of them. It just seems virtually impossible to ever be able to assess in real time how healthy a marriage is at any given moment, Now, I know that there is this perception out there that the longer you're married to someone, the more you know them, like you know the back of your hand. Like, oh, yeah, I've been married to my hubby for 20 years. I know him better than he knows himself. Yeah, there's some truth in that. But paradoxically, there is also the reality that the longer you're married to someone, the more you come to realize, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know this girl at all. There's a stranger in my house, right? You guys know that song? No? I know one couple that does. listen to this very profound uh, set of words by theologian Stanley Harawas. He writes this, quote, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is, it means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. The reason why it's so hard Right? To know the health of a marriage is because we are complicated. But furthermore, the most easiest and most reliable indicator right, to know whether a marriage is healthy, even though the people in it are constantly changing, is through the presence or absence of sexual activity. Now, again, listen to what I did not say. I did not say the presence or absence of sexual desire but the presence or absence of sexual activity. That's a very important distinction to make, okay? Very, very important distinction to make, okay? And let me tell you why. Single people, listen, I'm about to reveal a secret to you that maybe you're not supposed to know, but I'm going to reveal it to you anyway. Something that you might not like me uh, after me telling you the secret, but I have to tell it to you now, okay? So here it is. Here's a secret that you don't find out until after you're married, but I'm going to tell you now. (laughs) The longer you're married to somebody and the older you get, the less exciting sex gets. That's the truth, right? Some of you think like, no, right? It's like me telling my six-year-old son, son, one day you're going to stop liking toys. No, right? It's true. The older you get, the longer you are married with that person that you're growing old with, the less explosive, the less exciting sex will be, okay? And because that is true, you know what else that means? It means the reason why you have sex with your spouse changes over time. You see, when you're young and you're freshly married, the main reason why you want to have sex with your spouse is because you desire sex, right? That's why. That's the truth. (laughs) But as you get older and the longer you are married, the main reason why you want to have sex with your spouse is because you desire to love your spouse to where you're willing to do things that sometimes you don't even want to do, (laughs) such as sex, right? 
That's the truth. Sex starts off in marriage as something that is a pleasure thing for me, and it morphs into a ministry, a service that I provide to my spouse because I want to bless and I want to give and I want to be selfless. It starts off very selfishly and it ends very selflessly. Sex starts off as something for me and it becomes a ministry to your spouse, a way to serve them, a way to bless them. But here's the thing. Though there are two different reasons why spouses will have sex with one another, there is always and only one reason why a couple will never want to have sex with each other. And you know what that reason is? Sin. Sin. Read again verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here it says Adam and Eve were both naked. They were being sexual towards one another, and they had no shame. Now, if you go back and read on in the story, you know, find, you find out later they do have shame. And what do they do? They cut each other off sexually. They cover their nakedness from each other. Why? Because they sin. They sinned against God and they sinned against each other. Nothing will kill the desire for you to have sex with your spouse. Nothing will kill the desire for you to serve your spouse by having sex with them than sin. See, this is why sexual activity is the most reliable indicator to the health of the marriage because sexual activity is the most reliable indicator of sin in marriage. Okay? Do you guys get that? It is virtually impossible to want to have sex with someone who you've wronged or who've wronged you. Okay? It is not possible. Why? Because sin does not promote a one flesh marriage. You know what it promotes instead? A curse filled marriage a curse-filled marriage what is a curse-filled marriage pastor john curse-filled marriages are basically marriages that have five characteristics that could all be defined by the letters that make up the word curse follow along first cursed marriage c controlling right where one spouse needs to control the behavior of the other spouse ranging from what kinds of clothes they wear how much they weigh or how spiritual they need to be and so forth you, unforgiving, where one or both spouses never forgive the other person for their faults, but instead keeps a long record of all their faults so they can later use it as evidence as to why the other spouse is wicked and why they are not. R, reactive, when one or both spouses don't think or process their frustrations and anger and at the other, at the other spouse, but instead just let it out immediately because they assume they don't need to process anything. All I know is that I'm unhappy, I should never be unhappy, and you must be responsible for it. S, shaming, where one or both spouse constantly point out the faults and failures of the other person to where they are communicating the message, you are dysfunctional, you are a reject, you are a hopeless failure, nothing you do will ever change the fact that you are essentially worthless person. E, ego-driven, where one or both spouses make the marriage about them to where they make their spouse responsible for making their life easier, happier, and fulfilled. Curse, C-U-R-S-E. These five characteristics are manifestation of sin that, it, quite honestly, it's hard to point to specifically, concretely. The most reliable way to know if you have these five things ruining your marriage, assess the frequency or infrequency of sexual activity. Now, putting all this together, what does it mean? Here's what it means. When I said in my last point that God intended sex to be the unifying force between a husband and wife, that also means all of the relational dynamics that would encourage and promote sex, right? Such as not having a curse-filled marriage. But what is that? What kind of relational dynamic do you need to have between a husband and a wife in order to have not a curse-filled marriage? You know what you need? You need a marriage that is mysterious. Take a look at that passage in Ephesians chapter 5. 
starting in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here, Paul describes marriage as a mystery. Why? Because he's essentially saying that marriage, the way God created it, was to model the mystery of God's love. Did you know that God's love is mysterious? Oh, how? Why? Why is God's love mysterious? Come on back for just a moment. In order to not have a one, in order to have, excuse me, a one flesh marriage, right? It cannot be a curse filled marriage, which is simply another way of saying it cannot be a marriage that has sin in it. Now, how in the world do you pull that off? How do two sinners who say I do to each other not end up with a curse filled marriage? You know how? Through the mystery of the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God, your creator, looks at you as the sinful, perverted, evil, selfish person that you are. And he has every right to curse you. That is, he has every right to control you, to squash your rebellion against him. He has every right to be unforgiving towards you. Because of the fact that he's blessed you with so many blessings on earth and on heaven. He has every right, right, to reject you because of the fact that he sets you up with so much to flourish in and yet you still reject him. He has every right to shame you and say to yourself, you're hopeless. You'll never change, which is true unless he's willing to do something to intervene to change that. He has every right to shame and he has a right to be as weird as it sounds, to be ego-driven. You know why? Because he is the center of the universe. He is the meaning of life. He is the purpose of everything. He has every right to do that. And yet, for some mysterious reason, the mystery, instead of treating us that way, how does he respond? He doesn't curse. He loves. Right? He does the exact opposite of what a cursed-filled relationship is. By coming into this world as Jesus Christ to be our savior substitute, dying on the cross, paying for all of our sins, past, present, and future. So that in effect, he's doing the opposite of what a curse-filled spouse would do to their spouse. Instead of controlling, he came to serve. Instead of being unforgiving, he came to forgive. And came to reject, he came to accept. Right? And came, instead of to shame, right? he took the shame for you. Instead of being fixated on himself and building a kingdom for his own name, he always glorified his father in heaven. That is how your savior loves you. And that is how a one flesh marriage becomes mysterious. See, when you understand that, when you grasp that's the nature of God's love for you, you know what that does? It changes how you love other people, namely your spouse, to where pretty soon, even when your spouse sins against you, instead of responding with a curse, you respond the way Jesus responded to you. And pretty soon, they start noticing that you're changing. You're becoming more like Jesus, right? You're becoming more like Jesus to them. And all of a sudden, they think, oh my gosh, you're becoming the one. Because that is the one, right? There is one person that you are meant to be with. There is one person who is the one for you. There is one person who is the true soulmate. It's Jesus, the one who your spouse is becoming to where as he becomes, she becomes, you recognize him or her as the one who resembles your true soulmate. You see, that is the mystery of the gospel. 
And that is how you create a one flesh marriage. A marriage still filled with sin, but yet sin that can be overcome because you constantly remember who God is to you in Jesus Christ. And the more you grasp that, the more you understand that, the more the desire and the willingness to be sexually active with your spouse that will further create the sensation that this person is your one will happen. And the more you become the person who God has called you to be. Here's my question, NCF. Here's my question to you, married folks. Is that your marriage? Is that how your marriage could be characterized? For those of you who are single, is this the vision? Is this the dream? Is this the fantasy that you're chasing after? I hope for your sake and for your spouse's sake, that truly is. At this time, I want to end my message by talking about some next steps, some practical things that you can do to think about how you can better apply today's message. Number one, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and today's message really resonated with you to the point where you're ready to make Jesus the Lord of your life, take this time to pray and ask him to forgive your sins and make him the center of your life. Commit your life to him and then come talk to me or Pastor James. We would love to get you started on this new wonderful journey of your walk with God. Number two, um, assess your current view of marriage, especially if you're currently married, and ask yourself, does my view of marriage correspond to the Bible's view of marriage, or is it corresponding to Disney or K-drama, right? One practical way of knowing that is that you're watching too much K-drama right now, okay? I have to watch Disney because I'm a daddy. I, I would never volunteer to watch this stuff. But if you're voluntarily watching and exposing yourself, that's going to affect you, yo. Be careful. What's so funny? Number three, read a good Christian book on marriage. If your view of marriage is not biblical, read a book either alone or with Oikos Group members. Three, I would recommend The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey, and What Did You Expect by Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp. Okay, finally, pray for one another in your Oikos Group. Pray for the married couples that they would have a one flesh marriage and pray for the singles who want to get married and they will strive to have a one flesh marriage by prioritizing, maturing spiritually so they'll be ready for it when God brings their spouse to them. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us to truly live out and apply today's message. Whether we are married or single, we ask for grace. We ask for mercy. God, would you help us to do that? Help us to really live out this calling of this beautiful mystery known as marriage. Father, I do pray for our husbands. I pray for our wives. I pray for our singles, especially those who are craving for marriage. Father, you created this within us, and we know that you are a faithful father who will satisfy the desires of our heart, but in a way that is pleasing to you and not to ourselves. Give us the patience to wait, as well as the patience to endure and to be forgiving to our spouse so that we could be a living example before a watching world that has no idea what true love is. May we truly be the mirror that reflects the glorious one who is the one that every person is searching for in their hearts. Help us to live that out now as our mission, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen.